0: If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. So, Justin, you, you're the
1: one that got in contact with, uh, with Chad, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I reached out. Um, my friend Corey that we had on, Corey Schlesinger, uh, recommended uh, Chad because... Well, and I knew of of Juggernaut training systems before. I mean, anybody who's in the powerlifting world, the Olympic lifting world, has heard of Juggernaut. I mean, they're they're all over. They and put
1: out quality uh, strength, very high level stuff, high level information. One of the few publications, online publications, that you, you know is, is coming out with quality stuff. These guys know what they're talking about. Um, and it was a fun, it was a good podcast. I mean, we got pretty deep into 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 lifting, deep into training. Um, I like the I liked it when we talked about the the stuff about kids. H- Hands yes. down,
3: the best part of this entire podcast. Um, if we lose you at the beginning, because it is a little bit slower, uh, the inf- and the information is pretty high level and specific to strength training. But I think uh, anybody and everybody that uh, either was a kid at one point and played sports or has a kid that is playing sports or thinking about playing sports there's a must listen to mm, section uh, that I, I mean there's I call it nugget bombs yeah well there's not a lot of times where we get a guest uh, especially in the fitness world where I'm like I'm intently listening because I I have no clue on what the best answer is for this discussion and oh he, I learned a lot right there right so did I so yeah. he he goes into you know literally from five years old up to adulthood, uh, kind of what the cadence of um training would look like, and sports would look like for the ideal performance long term for that athlete, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is counter to it's counterintuitive to what most people would think so if if you at all are into sports or have a kid that's into sports um I, I i you know i highly recommend listening to at least that section it's of, like
1: in the middle back half of the episode yeah good I would say. good good section of this yeah, for sure but you know good good strength uh information good stuff for power lifters and athletes um and uh, again he's this guy is an incredible resource of good quality uh, information now he is the host of the uh, uh, of the the Jug Life podcast. Jug Life. They have a YouTube channel, really good quality um, strength information. Juggernaut Training Systems. That's how you find them on YouTube. His uh, the Instagram is Ch- uh, Chad Wesley Smith. So that's at Chad Wesley Smith, and you can also find their official Instagram page for the company at Juggernaut Training. Um, I also would like to rec- uh, to remind everybody that this month. MAPS Anabolic, which is our foundational strength-building, metabolism-boosting, muscle-building fitness program, is 50% off. Just go to MAPSFitnessProducts.com. Use the code RED50, five zero for the 50% off discount. Um, And you can also take a look at our other MAPS programs. Uh, One of the best ways to get your body to respond to training and get your body to improve rapidly is to train yourself appropriately according to your current fitness level um, and your goals. And so we have different fitness programs on that site, um, one of which will be best for your body. You can find all of that at mapsfitnessproducts.com. So without any further ado, here we are interviewing Chad Wesley Smith of Juggernaut Training Systems.
3: Chad, Chad where are you located at? Huh? Costa Mesa. Okay. So not a bad fight for you either, yeah?
4: Yeah, we're, we're coming up here this weekend already. Oh, no shit. Yeah, So. Oh. Uh, do a seminar tomorrow afternoon and Sunday uh, in Oakland. Where at in Oakland? Who's at a gym or where yeah, you got? at? At uh, Max's gym. So Max Ada. Very creative gym naming. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then going going today from here up to do some stuff with the 49ers. Oh, I, nice. Are you going to the,
3: the new 49er gym?
4: Uh, we're going to Levi.
3: Oh, okay. Have you? Did you see that they just opened their uh, their first like collab, right? So it's a gym. Uh, Mark Mastroff is doing a line with the NFL, and they just opened the Forty Nine er Fit gym, which is here in Santa Clara, which I think okay. it's really close to there. So you'll probably, I imagine, you yeah. guys will probably go buy it. Maybe A Rod was there yesterday. I know
4: they just had the big launch for it. So yeah, the, when are
1: we gonna go there? I we're supposed to. <laughs> yeah.
4: They have a turnover on the on the staff. They they fired the head strength coach. So.
3: Oh, really? Oh, really?
4: Yeah. I didn't know that.
3: So do you uh, do you go and do like consulting for a lot of places and gyms? Because I, I mean, I'll, just a the little bit of background that I have on you. I mean, as far as, uh, you know, strength and powerlifting, you guys have been, in my opinion, one of the most credible, best resources yeah. on YouTube that I've ever found. And for so um, I would imagine you probably go around and help out a lot of other gyms. Any powerlifter I
2: know always refers me to your guys'
3: stuff. So, Yeah.
4: The, uh, yeah, you know, when I started out, we did a lot more stuff in sport performance than, uh, we have, have recently, but I'm getting back into doing more of that. So done some stuff with the 49ers, with the Rams, um, just yesterday, Wednesday did like a coaching education thing for the Mamba sports Academy. Uh, it a crazy facility that Kobe Bryant, it was just called sports Academy before and Kobe Bryant invested in it maybe six months ago. 100,000 square foot facility in Thousand Oaks. What? Oh, wow. It's sick or what? Uh, Is it ridiculous? Yeah, it's got, you know, tons of volleyball courts, basketball courts, because they're hosting tournaments there as well as doing combine prep and coaching, you know, from little kids to grandmas. They got jujitsu school in there, physical therapy, like one-stop shop. The full gamut. They have a esports training facility. When I had seen that on the website, I was that's like,
1: creeping into Dude, all Do we just sports? start talking yeah.
4: about that?
2: Yeah, we had a guy on that was like trying to explain to us how insanely popular this is and how much money is oh, yeah. being thrown at it now from even professional teams.
4: They they sell out. You know, they're, they're selling out basketball arenas mm-hmm. and some of the features I've seen on ESPN. <laughs> it's 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 crazy to see, but at the same time, as someone involved in powerlifting and weightlifting, it's just like. Man, they're getting fifteen thousand people to show up for a fifteen million dollar, you know, grand prize for people to play fucking video games. <laughs>
1: yeah, right, Mario man. Brothers. Yeah. And it, I'm squatting a thousand pounds. What the yeah, hell? Yeah, <laughs>
4: yeah.
1: it, it yeah, was. That's really impressive. Yeah,
4: you know, it it was only five years ago that USA Weightlifting had their national championships in a roller rink in Akron, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. Perspective.
1: When you go and you you work with these professional teams, uh, these professional football teams, what are some of the things that you help them on? I mean, I, I would I would imagine at that high level, um, it gets very specific on the things that you can even help them with.
4: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just kind of whatever questions the coach has and they want to talk about. I think they're, they're for the most part, people are going to look to me to Juggernaut as like, all right, how do we get our players maximally strong. Mm. But to be honest, that is not that important of a quality for NFL football players. Like they're going to be strong enough, but even the strongest NFL player isn't going to blow, you know, blow you away in terms of, of powerlifting numbers. Mm. So I'm, I'm much more interested in, and my background is track and field, much more interested in about how to manage all aspects of, you know, skill acquisition alongside the physical preparation and, you know, really figuring out exercises with the highest transfer of, of training. So, you know, really, really high dynamic correspondence because, yeah, bench, bench press, squat, that stuff, it's all well and good. And, and you're not going to have a really successful NFL player who's like bad at those things. But I saw enough, I've seen enough times with athletes that I've worked with in the NFL who I could bench. You know, even offense linemen, guys who played, you know, at a, a buddy who played at SC, and then for the raiders for a couple of years he was benching 350 when i was benching 550 he was squatting mm. you know 450 when i was squatting 850 i could jump higher than him jump farther than him but when he came out of a out of a 3 point stance and and threw a double hand punch that was really fast and really hard and way harder than i could do it mm. and that's the skill that he needs so if Benching more and squatting more and general jumps and stuff isn't transferring that highly, which granted this is only like N one example, but how can we find exercises that mimic the direction, duration, velocity of the sporting movement to get better transfer? And that, that's something mm-hmm. that looking back at my own track and field career, uh, you know, if I could go back in time and change things I had this huge bench, huge squat, huge vertical jump, all this stuff. But I was like, there are other guys who can't do that stuff as well as me but they're throwing the shot put farther mm-hmm. so how are they doing that are uh, they throwing heavier shots lighter shots you know more rotational strength drills things that aren't maybe like as sexy to measure no one's like well what's your best uh you know barbell standing barbell twist no one ever asked that yeah. and i would be like well i bench 500 and i squat 750 but that barbell twist had a lot more reason why they were throwing 70 feet and I was throwing 65.
1: What are some of the exercises that you're seeing that are giving people or athletes the biggest carryover? I mean, as trainers, we, when we train, we train average people. We don't train, uh, I, I've, I've trained very few high, high level athletes. And when I train the average person, a squat has a huge carryover of them, just getting them to be able to squat and then mm-hmm. getting the stronger at the squat. I could see lots of carryover, but when you're working with that level of performance, what exercises are you finding? Are there are there movements that you're finding that have incredible carryover that maybe the average person wouldn't even consider?
4: Um, you know, to to paint with a broad brush on those kind of movements would be a bit tough because it's going to be so specific to not just a sport but a position, sure, w- uh, within that sport as well. But you know how how we're going to classify exercises, and this all goes back to you know, Doctor Anatoly Bondarchuk, he was the the, na- the national throws coach for the Soviet Union for 25 years coached the two best hammer throwers of all time and really sort of revolutionized this idea of special strength rather than just, all right, I'm going to get this hammer thrower to squat as much as he can, snatch and clean as much as he can. We can actually take those numbers down to about 70% of what he previously thought because now we're going to throw heavy hammer on the short wire and these different rotational type of drills. So he classified exercises: general preparatory, general developmental, special preparatory, mm. special developmental, competitive exercise. Oh, interesting! Mm. So competitive exercise is the is the sport that's the the tip of the pyramid. I've heard you talk about this pyramid of
2: speci- yeah. uh, uh specificity, and uh, yeah, if you could yeah. go
4: into that even a little further. Yeah. So if you, if you were to think about exercise selection and athlete qualification as a as a pyramid, the tip of the pyramid is the competitive exercise is the most specific thing you can do and give an example of that, like for a sport. So we, so the uh, listener understands. So let's take uh weightlifting as, as the example. This is kind of a simple one. If the Bulgarian system, the most specific training maximums, multiple times, daily maximums snatch, clean and jerk squat or front squat, that's all they would do. But, and, and Ilya Ilyin, you know, is, is the best example of this because he in his career went through this entire pyramid. So, so as we look at the, let's actually go ground up on the pyramid day one base of the pyramid, very broad. The most people are there was the broadest and the most exercises will possibly transfer to their, to their improvement. So let's say that, you know, if you think back to the, the first day you were, you know, the first month that you lifted or, someone who's brand new to training all of the exercise they could do that would improve their squat. Of, of course, any squatting variation, you know, lunges, leg extensions, leg press, goblet squat, tons of different mobility exercises, probably just fucking thinking about squatting would improve their squat at that point. As they become more qualified and, and like better at squatting, the exercise selection starts to narrow. Now thinking about squatting, leg extension, stuff like that. Well, maybe that might not help as much or at all get higher and higher on that it continues to, to be more focused. And then it's going to basically just be squatting and very close variations to it are going to have a big, a big carryover form. So back to the weightlifting example, uh, first heard Ilya speak at a seminar in, uh, in late 2013 and, uh, yeah, I think late late 2013, late 2012, one or the other. And he talked about when he started weightlifting, he was five, five six years old. And his mom sent him to the weightlifting club with his older brother because he was like hyperactive and he would just run around the house. So she's like, oh, get out of here. So now he said he would run around the gym and do all the exercises. And that probably didn't mean that six-year-old Ilya had free reign of playtime in a Kazakh weightlifting gym. But it meant that he did... Very broad preparation, like the base of the pyramid because mm-hmm. six mm-hmm. years old. So, of course, it's the, it's the bottom. So, he's doing stuff like gymnastics-based drills, all kinds of calisthenics, swimming, jumping, track and field-based drills, playing games, doing weightlifting technique. And then, said so by the time that he was 18, he had no relative weakness. So, he began training in the Bulgarian style, three, you know, probably 11 to 16 sessions per week. So some double days, some triple days, snatch to maximum, clean and jerk to maximum, front squat to maximum. Three hours later, same thing. Three hours later, same thing. His progression from running around the gym to do all the exercises to the most specific training possible, you know, wasn't instantaneous. It wasn't, well, I just ran around the gym and did all the exercises. And then on my 18th birthday, they're like, no, only these ones now, you know, it just changed in proportion as he went. Hmm. Because those general phases of training, gymnastics, swimming, and and that kind of stuff, things he still does to this day, they didn't have direct transfer to his snatch and clean and jerk performance like they would have earlier. Right. So the same thing when you get you know high level NFL player, MMA fighter, whatever it is, all those exercises can have their place at the right time during during the year. But when you're you know a month out from from starting. Or you're in training camp or something. Is it worth the energy to try and put ten pounds on on a guy's bench press or mm-hmm. twenty pounds on his squat? Right. Is that going to make him better? Or is this you know five yard sled push from his stance going to make him better? Or, or different explosive med ball throws where he's you know punching with two hands that kind of stuff? That's going to have a much higher transfer.
2: That makes a lot of sense. I've heard a lot of strength coaches actually talk about the importance of basically introducing these young athletes to as many sports as possible oh, yeah. and then starting to refine the process and specializing uh later on as a mature is that similar to how uh, you grew up and I know you were involved in a lot of sports but kind of take us back to that.
3: You were a track guy you said right? Yeah. Cuz you look just like a cross country runner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe two or three maybe two yeah. or three <laughs> of them.
4: The uh, yeah so for me personally yeah I kind of lucked into my parents Yeah, not they weren't like, all right, this is how we're gonna make Chad into a good athlete. I just did a lot of sports, and and a lot of them turned out to be ones that are very helpful. Uh, You know, I started playing soccer and all that stuff organized when I was five years old, and then started track and field at eight years old. And at that time, I ran the 50 meters and 100 meters, four by 100 relay, and through the shot put. And I was just doing that because I was like, oh my. Friend started doing track the year before and he's good. So we'll go hang out with Kevin and it'll be a good time. And then uh, I did track from when I was eight till I was 23 and uh, eventually dropped the the 50 and the hundred, but not till I was like 13, 14 years old uh, when I started to get bigger in high school. Even I'm always proud of this. When we were 13, we were Southern California 4x100 four by 100 champions for white boys from, from Irvine. Oh wow. So that was mostly just, we had good technique on the handoffs, but still got the W so yeah, I did track, did you know, basketball, soccer, uh, then high school, played football and track and field, and then went to University of California, Berkeley on a track scholarship. So the shot put was there for two years, junior college for a year, and then uh, finished my last two years at a small NAI school in Southern California called Concordia, where I ended up throwing 63-10 in college, and then one year as a post-collegiate through 65-7 uh, but at that point, 2009 had started Juggernaut. Ten year anniversary this year.
3: Oh, well, congrats! And, uh,
4: thank you. I, I, I had kind of forgotten about that until, as writing the date on something that January second, or hmm. it was like one, two, nineteen. Wasn't, t- well, <laughs> nah, <it> wasn't
2: that hashtag ten year challenge thing? No, wasn't that? Yeah,
4: of course. I wrote 2018, and I was like, no, 2019. I was like, 2019. Oh, we started a company ten years ago. <laughs> yeah. Wow! What was That's the goal? Crazy.
1: What was the goal when you started uh, Juggernaut?
4: Yeah, so you know, we started as a sport performance gym. Uh, so
1: it's a physical location. Yeah, train people.
4: Yeah. Um, at, at that point, I was still doing still doing track. Uh, I realized through the first about nine months of that, I was like, well, I am working about sixty five hours a week here. All the other people who are trying to go to the Olympics for the shot put, they just throw the shot put all day. So I don't think this is going to work out. Um, so from the business side of, side of stuff, we just wanted to, to train athletes. You know, uh, Joe DeFranco was like the really big influence on me the summer before my senior year of college. So uh, summer of 2008, I was in New York visiting my brother and uh, you know, rented a car and made what well, was essentially a religious pilgrimage for me to New Jersey to go to Joe DeFranco's oh. gym and uh a couple months ago I was doing this doing a seminar or doing a podcast with him and we got to reminisce over that and awesome. I, you know i made like a little youtube vlog out of it before that was really a thing unfortunately the the music on it now youtube like we'll took it yeah mm-hmm. so it's it's just like silent uh, <laughs> on the video now but mm-hmm. uh but that's what i wanted to do is exactly what he did uh you know was train football players and do combine prep and train mma fighters and all these just badass people and you know, we did that for three years in that original location, but into 2010, uh, I wrote the juggernaut method ebook, like the first one that I'd done, I did my first powerlifting meet. And with the success of that book at the time, I was like, well, you know, training people in person is really cool, but we're never going to have more than 120, 150 people that we see here every month. There's tens of thousands of people that have bought this book. Plus, I didn't have to pay rent to sell it," I said. "So maybe this internet thing—it'll be a big <laughs> deal." How'd you get
1: the idea to write? Because this is back in 2010, not that long ago, but in uh, I guess new media, internet land, and, and you know promoting yourself online, mm-hmm. it kind of is right. Like oh, man, where, it feels
4: like a lifetime, multiple w- lifetimes ago.
1: Where did you get the idea to do that?
4: Uh, you know, at the time I was on Elite FTS. I'd been on there for about two years and uh, there were a couple other people doing eBooks, basically like Jim Wendler had five, three, one. And I was just like, Oh, that seems like a good idea. You know, we have this program, the juggernaut method program that I had written and we were using with sort of the majority of our clientele, which were high school athletes from various sports. And it was just like a good kind of base beginner intermediate program for them so was, i just asked asked dave tate i think i was like hey sh- like should i make this into a book and probably the, the guy who was even the bigger influence on it was uh and bob island uh some people would know him as rob fitzgerald or the angry coach um i think i remember that yeah so he wrote for elite fts uh, he wrote a lot of stuff for them under different pseudonyms and and uh, like ghostwriting things, but he was also the senior editor of Muscle and Fitness. So right as I would gotten onto Elite, he had taken that job and and moved out to Southern California, and I was like the only person he he knew out there. For a guy who is the most New York person imaginable, like oh, yeah. you know, had been like NYPD, <laughs> you know, coached football, coached lacrosse out there, just a gristled New York man. guy. Yeah. And very angry, but, uh, says so angry coach nickname was apropos, but he, he uh, was also an excellent writer and he kind of encouraged me towards that. And I showed him the program and he's like, Oh yeah, this'll be, this'll be great. It'll be a hit.
1: Now what made you want to do it online?
3: Oh uh, because I mean, like, you guys have a huge presence. Well, online. he he made the yeah. comment that you know at what one point he he noticed that the gym is only going to fit about 150 people in there, yeah. and the book was reaching thousands of people. I think the light bulb probably yeah. just went off. Like, if I want to make some good money doing this, this is probably the direction yeah, to go. Smart
4: move. Yeah, and there there was just a lot with the the yeah everyone or not everyone, but so many people. I think more so at that time too had seen people like Joe DeFranco and Zach Evanish and we're like yeah I want to have this hardcore you know warehouse gym and do that and there's so much that comes along with it that's not just training you know badass athletes there's a lot of you know, hours in the day where those people can't train.
3: It's very hard to make a a, a small box very successful. Yeah. People, people just assume that, you know, with, with all the flash and shit that, Oh, there's a lot of money in this, you know, there really
4: isn't. It's tough. Yeah. And there's a lot of bathrooms to clean and taxes to do (laughs) and all that kind of bullshit too. So, you know, uh, uh, we finished the lease there in, in late 2012. Mm -hmm. And at that point I'd started training a lot more football players, which is what I really enjoyed the most. And I was like, This I can train just this group and focus on our on our online stuff. So our lease ended, moved out of that place, sublet from another another gym, so I could just train football players. And the group that I really liked was I get high school seniors as you know the day after their season finished and get them ready to go to college, go play college football. That's cool. So in two in two years we had an incredibly comprehensive program. I'd see these guys. Two to three hours a day, five to six days a week, nutrition, mobility, on on field, speed and agility in the weight room, you know, every, everything about it, like as, as or more comprehensive than what we had even done for NFL combine prep mm-hmm. stuff, because it was six months with them rather than 10 weeks. Now,
3: what kind of success did you see from that? Did you guys have a lot of success?
4: Oh, yeah. And it's cool now to see some of the guys are in the NFL. Oh, that's cool. And uh, like their first, second, third years in the NFL. And in in those two years of, of really pushing that group hard, <clears throat> you know, we had two guys to SC, three to UCLA, three to Washington, wow. five to Washington State. Wow. And it was fortunate that Orange County is kinda of like hotbed for uh, for high school football. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean one of the we had nine D one guys from one school, so that that was helpful. What yeah. were you guys doing it that was, was different? Day than, down there.
1: Yeah. What what were you guys doing that was different than a lot of other other training systems or
4: uh, I think how comprehensive it was, was the biggest piece. It was incredibly competitive. Um, you know, the group was pretty much fifteen. the first, the first year I had to recruit a bit more and say like, all right, you guys should come do this, this special training group we're going to do. But then the next year, because the first year guys were so successful, I'm talking like on average and the the numbers are going to be a bit off, but it was in this ballpark. Like plus fifty, sixty pounds on all their benches, plus a wow. hundred, yeah. hundred and twenty pounds in the squat. You know, minus that's so rad. Yeah, taking two to three tenths off their forty-yard dashes, and guys gaining twenty pounds of body weight in this six-month span. And it's you know a, mirac- a miraculous time of life. You're eighteen years old. You, you know, know. hyper responder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and obviously very talented genetically like that's why they are getting. yeah Yeah, but But,
3: not not to take anything from your programming i mean that's that's exactly what happens when you got the recipe for and i and i feel like 10 years ago we were in such need for that in Mm -hmm. especially that age group like the Mm -hmm. the high school going to college i didn't feel like there was a lot of people that were presenting a lot of really good information around that time
4: yeah. So we, we just got to, be, I think the biggest thing was that it was so comprehensive and so competitive, mm-hmm. you know, that, that I planned out six months of training for each person, you know, by their position, by what kind of system they were going to run at their school, what kind of conditioning tests they had to, to be ready for. They worked with our, our PTs right off the bat to have sort of customized movement plans for them. They so got, did they you got base it by like their pros. positions? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's another level. You don't see that anywhere
2: with strength conditioning coaches and programming.
4: Yeah, and the, the position stuff is like – it seems like kind of a, a no-brainer. Right. right. I mean, you know, people are getting better at it now, but you see these these conditioning tests, and, and this part is still bad for a lot of teams even up in the NFL. These conditioning tests, and they're running 110s or 300-yard shuttles, and it's like, have you ever watched a football game? Like, <laughs> yeah. You got to watch – this guy never moves more than five yards. Like – yeah. yeah. He's got to be the wildest animal possible in this five yard by five yard box, over and over again. I right? always Every thought that forty five seconds. But. Yeah,
2: our linemen having to run all these hundred yard sprints with us yeah. and just dying, and it's like, come on, let's let's make it a little more specific to what they're going to do. Well, be doing let's here. let's
3: let's talk a little bit about that because I think that's really interesting for the listener to understand is like how different the training looks like for, let's say, a lineman versus a wide receiver, and maybe you can give some examples of things that you just absolutely would not do with a wide receiver that you would do with alignment and vice versa.
4: Yeah. So, um, you know, I'll talk some in kind of principle based ideas about this and then can get some specifics for the actual positions. The first thing you got to do is, is look at the athlete. So this is going to be for, for any sport. Uh, you know, the, the kind of sports science term would be a, a time motion analysis. But what we're looking at is how far do they move in each effort so football is nice and straightforward because you say hike then the whistle blows and then you get a little bit of rest where basketball or soccer is kind of continuously ongoing but for football it's simple because all right these these guys move zero to ten yards per play these guys move you know five to 20 yards these guys move five to thirty five yards in one play. what kind of velocities are they going what sort of resistance do they? face along the way change of direction type of stuff so once we can establish that and the time parameters how long arrests do they have in between those efforts now we can start to design some really effective running programs for the, for these players and that you know i think people think because i'm a power lifter me, just gotta lift 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 the lifting as long as you don't do something really dumb there's a lot of lifting that's good enough for football players, basketball players people want to try and reinvent the wheel with some of that stuff and get into it to
3: crazy movements and shit. Yeah. Things that are <laughs> maybe overly creative. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was it was like like I, I saw one yeah. the other day on YouTube with the rotating all weird on the stability ball and punching and shit like that. And yeah. <laughs> like dude, you, guys could cre- you could create that with a landmine and you get the same fucking carryover, mm-hmm. man.
4: Yeah. <laughs> so assuming you're not getting overly creative in the weight room, a lot of those things can be good enough. But people will really mess up these running programs because the first year we did NFL combine prep and had like six guys get drafted and we, we asking them, you know, these wide receivers and stuff, well, what kind of speed training did you guys do at your school? Uh, you know, we'd run uh, 16 110s or, you know, 2040s or something like that. And it's like, no, no not, not what kind of stupid conditioning did you do? What kind of speed training <laughs> did you do? And with my background being track and field, I got t- to have exposure to a lot of really high-level sprinters, um, mm-hmm. and had a kind of special opportunity for my first three, my last year of college and first three years. Of juggernaut hosting the UK Athletics, the British National Track Team for their warm weather training camp. They'd come out California for about six weeks, and this is Dwayne Chambers, who was six forty two in the sixty uh, European record holder in the hundred meters. Christina Huragoo is gold medalist in the four hundred. And see these see these the most elite sprinters in the world work out, and when you see really elite sprinters do speed training, you know do their speed work, you're like, well, oh, these are the fucking laziest people ever. <laughs> they just did five seconds of work and then they sat around for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but that's what real speed training has to be. It has to be these incredibly high level efforts because mm.
1: it's anaerobic.
4: Yeah, and and no matter how many you can run as many four eights as you want. No amount of four eights make you run a four four. Right now, when you run a four six, you can't four eight four eight four eight four eight. When you're tired, doesn't make you run a four four. Mm -hmm. It makes you run a four eight. (laughs) Yeah, so so all these these football guys were getting conditioned and improperly conditioned rather than doing real speed training. Mm -hmm. So putting together the right kind of running programs for them with the right distances, the right rest intervals for it to be appropriate conditioning that i think is is a big piece mm-hmm. and a big differentiation between between positions cuz you can get into to general speed training stuff you know we're going to start on the line and run in a straight line as fast as we can for this given distance but then as we would progress through the year we would get into more like a special capacity uh you know spe- special strength exercises but they're more special conditioning exercises doing stuff like uh, maybe a wide receiver and defensive back or a running back and linebacker. Wide receivers and DBs, we'd put them in a 20-by-20-yard 20 20 box and say, all right, six seconds, you tag him as many times as you can in six seconds. The Linebackers and running backs, maybe they're in a 12-by-12-yard 12 12 box. Same idea. So this guy's pursuing, this guy's changing direction, they're moving similarly to how they would in, in, in a football game positional start stuff like coming out of their stance you know moving laterally for a couple yards then straight ahead all that stuff is important like you can't just do the the special exercise you have to Mm -hmm. develop the straight line speed because so much of sport speed is is actually happening at at like less than 100 percent effort so if you're if right now you run a, a four or five but most of the time during the game you know because you have to be aware of everything going on and changing direction, you're actually running more like 80% of that speed. Well, now if we can run four, four, you can still run 80% or you could run 76% and still get past the guy. And now as conditioning is easier and everything create more of that like speed reserve with traditional speed training and then the capacity mm-hmm. with the the more specific drills.
3: What's your thoughts on the, the camps that say that in sports training, that the ability to decelerate is more valuable than even the ability to accelerate. What do you think?
4: Uh, I I mean, that kind of prior like prioritizing it like that. They're they're all important. It's not, it's not right. Like I know it's an overgeneralization yeah. statement for sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the ability to to decelerate, to change direction, right. To have these like very slight you know shifts in in body weight the the vision and understanding of how the play works that's what allows someone to play very fast you know as we're we're here in the in the bay area two San Francisco 49ers who are perfect examples of this one to the good side of things Jerry Rice Jerry Rice is not a fast the goat guy in in terms of running this blazing 40 yard dash you know he's like a four six four seven kind of guy Tim Brown same same way hmm. But he has such a great understanding of what the defensive back was going to do, what he had to do, anticipation of, of mm-hmm. the of everyone's movement, that with this you know small fake and and everything, he could create this little bit of separation to look like he plays really fast, mm-hmm. to look like he was the fastest guy out there. Yeah, defense uh, defensive back a few years ago named Taylor Mays, guy from USC, freak of nature. 4'3", 40, 6'3", 245 pounds. Absolute freak of nature. We were talking to the former strength coach for the 49ers, and he talked about how slow Taylor has played. Because when he was in high school, he could go three steps out of position. Right, he could make up for his wow. sloppy play. He make up for it. So he's just lazy. And then the in college, even at USC, he could go two steps out of position and come back and make the play. Hmm. But that can happen in the NFL. Right, right. So even though he ran a four three, his reactions and, and everything made it, you know, more like he was. Wow, how a four, often do you think four, that four, happens six. in professional sports? You think that's common? Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure a common thing. And some of it, I wonder if it's you get these really fast, like a, a common criticism among like the really fast players in the in the draft is do they just have straight line speed? Mm-hmm. If you had like a track guy come in. But it's not inherent. I think that being incredibly fast in a straight line means that you can't change direction. Yeah, you know, that it's not like something wired into their right. to their muscles that way. We have a, a weightlifter we coach, a guy named James Townsend, the most explosive person I've ever been around. Uh, he played football at Iowa and then for the Bears for a couple of years. Even now, James is thirty-three or thirty-four years old. He's Power cleaned, and I'm talking about barely a bend in his knees in the catch, 193 kilos, 425 pounds. He weighs 200 pounds. Whoa, Damn. He hang power snatch, 150 kilos, 330 pounds. He'd go out today and 43 inch vertical,
0: 11.5
4: broad jump, all this stuff. So I'm like, man, you know, how is he so strong, so fast? How is he not the best player in the NFL ever? And I asked him, you know, I talked to him about when he's playing, he's like, yeah, you know, just wasn't that smooth in and out of my brakes and all this stuff uh, when he's running routes. And then it got me thinking, there's probably, there's a lot of people like James. He was the fastest, you know, he was the fastest player when he was 10 years old. I mean, he was 15 years old and all the way through. So when he was a little kid, when you develop a lot of those change of direction abilities and coordination, where he didn't have to, because they were like, well, just, just, You know, get the corner. Just go. Yeah, just get to the edge. (laughs) Just Just, go. (laughs) Just run a streak, and you just run past everyone. Mm -hmm. Where you get a guy like Russell Wilson, who's not like a super fast 40-yard dash guy. And I heard him telling this story about he would go to the mall when he was a little kid. And in like the crowded kind of center. uh, Center court. Center court of the mall. He would just try and sprint through the crowd. And like cut. And uh, and change direction through all the people. You know, just like a ten, 10 year old kid just sprint through the crowd, get to the other side as fast as he could. And him and his friends would like start on one side and race to the other side through the crowd. Without hitting anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So he became, you know, great in in juking people out and, mm-hmm. and changing direction. And so much of that stuff kind of goes back to even the the pyramid of of strength and, and development. You had to develop those qualities early. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's like learning a language. It's hard to learn a language when you're an adult. It's hard to improve coordination and athleticism when you're an adult compared to when you're a kid. Mm-hmm.
1: It's it's not hard to communicate to most people about how important skill is in 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 sports. But sometimes when communicating to everyday people who just like to work out, how much just your gym strength is also a skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, telling people that there's a lot of skill involved and just being strong with your everyday workouts when you're deadlifting and bench pressing and squatting um i mean how how much of it is skill versus how much of it is just your muscles
4: uh the the better the the bigger numbers you lift the more of its skill and you know the skill of the one rep max for a powerlifter and weightlifter is going to be hugely important like for me powerlifting i squatted 970 pounds bench 567 Deadlifted 815, 23, 25 total at the time when I did. I think it was the ninth highest of all time. I've moved down that list a little bit, but I have people, people that I've coached, lifters that I know who, in so many of the exercises around the squat bench and deadlift, were far superior to me, but they were not better at one rep maxes in those lifts Hmm. because they'd probably spent a lot of their training life doing more bodybuilding type of stuff and, mm-hmm. and things that were just a little bit less specific. So they didn't have that skill, but we're talking about the top, you know, 0.1% of, of, uh, lifters in the world. As you, as you move farther down that pyramid, yeah, just hap- you know, being more muscular and stuff is going to allow them to, to lift more. Certainly. You,
1: you had mentioned like the, the, the Bulgarian that the, the gentleman you had brought up who trained in Bulgaria and was doing, you know, uh, specific lifts and he was doing them, you know, three times a day, like this mm. incredible amount of frequency. And, uh, you know, I guess in the early days of weightlifting, when the iron curtain was up, they were blowing us away because they, was it because they understood how important it was to practice and in, in this incredible amount of frequency of training versus our weightlifters? What was the big difference, um, uh, you know, between those two sides and why were they kicking our ass so much? Was it that, was it that they trained so often to practice the skill versus just Maxing out on the lifts.
4: Yeah, so yeah, you know, the the sport of weightlifting is kind of interesting because it's gone through these sort of ebbs and flows of of being really dominant, and, and everyone now is like, oh, U.S. You know, the U.S. sucks at weightlifting. We're getting a lot better now, as especially as other countries are having to clean up. Back fifties and sixties, we were very good, as good or better than than Russia. At some point, they decided to put a ton of attention towards. Sport as a political tool and, and really developed a level of sports science and st- infrastructure to their sports that the US does not have now, that it probably never will have.
1: It was state mm-hmm. sponsored.
4: Yeah. I mean. And that started, you know, as Ilya Ilyan is the lifter I was talking about yes, was there for, you go. for Kazakhstan, but yeah, former Soviet Union. The idea of him starting when he's six years old in like a sports school type of setting that's i think what set them apart more than anything is that they had this incredible level of general preparation Hmm. so by the time they were you know 18 they were able to to just excel that much more and it's that kind of all just goes to a a long-term or short-term development model and you know you see some of these young lifters in the u.s now cj cummings harrison morris incredible you know incredibly talented guys uh, Ian Wilson uh, was one who. Some, sometimes I, I get worried. I see those kind of guys because I, I wonder, uh, is their coach more concerned with them being the best, you know, fifteen-year-old in the world, or being the best twenty-five-year-old in the world? Because the two aren't aren't the same. Someone might still be the best fifteen-year-old in the world, training in a bit more general sense, but just because they're more talented, but doing the things that will make them immediately good are very specific training. You
1: and know. you think they should it would be better to avoid that if you want the long term.
4: For sure. You want to so if you if you take a Ilya ilian approach and this goes for for any sport the a lot of general training early and s- slowly over time, you know, when the athletes depending on the sport some like gymnastics that's going to be a little bit earlier, but weightlifting, track and field most team sports, when the athlete gets to be 18, 20 years old, maybe about 10 to 12 years in of training, where you're really going to shift to a lot more specialized training, you're going to get an athlete who improves. You take American sports model, six years old, you play club soccer, you play club soccer all year, mm-hmm. every year, soccer, 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 soccer practice, SPP, special physical preparation, sport practice all the time, no attention to GPP necessarily. Athlete improves like this, tapers off. Athlete with a lot of early GPP, later SPP, improve like this. That intersection point, 17, 18, 19, 20 so, years old. Like so, in it so in the GPP, beginning, genes are getting yeah. their
1: asses kicked.
4: Well, GPP
3: yeah. means you're basically rotating sports, right? You're playing all general sports. General yeah,
1: performance. That can, that can be it for sure, yeah. Okay, right. right. Okay. So So they're getting their butts kicked. Seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, right around 17, you're saying now they're as good as the kid who's been playing just soccer yeah. his whole life, mm. but then they start to surpass them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because
4: now their sports skill is close enough, while their physical skills are probably far superior, and then their sports skill is going to continue to improve, and their better, their greater physical skills will allow them to learn the sport, to develop the sports skill to a greater degree.
3: So based off of that recommendation, you would you then would probably recommend that most kids you know, play as many sports as they can all the way through high school, before uh, they start to really narrow it down to one.
4: Yeah, so I've, I've written a couple articles about this, and the, the football player, or the, the weightlifter James that I was talking about, he and I talk about this a, a ton, because he has two daughters who are the most phenomenally talented children I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, his five-year-old daughter, Perseus, do like there's a five-year-old girl. I've seen her do seventy push-ups.
0: What?
1: <laughs> like a That's set of what? a awesome. set of seventy push-ups. Are you serious? I quit. <laughs> yeah. I'm out of here. I quit. And,
2: uh, Forget it. Justin can't even do that right I, now. Wear me
4: <laughs> out. <laughs> She's tired thinking about it. Yeah, at five years old, she'd do like a twenty-seven-inch box jump.
2: Damn. Yeah. And
4: and this was really cause cause uh yeah, you know, he, he runs a gym and she would just come with him, yeah. You know, Play. And, uh-huh. Yeah, she'd be sitting in the stroller watching him work out and then she could walk when she was six months old. I mean, she's very remarkable, but she jumped on like a, a 45 pound bumper when she was one.
0: What? <laughs> like, <laughs> what?
4: And that doesn't make sense. So we've talked a lot of, uh, with James about this kind of long-term development ideas. Cause like, don't screw this up. All right. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. It's a golden goose. <laughs> <trigger. laughs> so, so like a simple model for it would be to break, uh, you know, the life up into, to multiple stages. So that first stage is, is let's say from about five to nine, five to 10 years old. I feel like gymnastics is where you would start. Yeah. Yeah. Gymnastics. So even, even before that five-year-old part of things, swimming is great because they probably swim before they can walk because the buoyancy is going to allow them to move their body through, Mm. through the water because they don't have to have as much strength. Uh, So swimming is, is sort of the the base and then, you know, whatever kind of like, Mommy and me tumbling gymnastics class they can do great but we'll we'll start at say five five years old so stage one would be five to nine five to ten you know biological age is a decent indicator but kid's going to develop at quite different rates that's a time where and it doesn't have to be competitive sport but activities related to gymnastics and track and field all the time you know mm-hmm. do that all year play games you know,
3: running tumbling yeah yeah jumping yeah.
4: whatever yeah play ayso soccer basketball mm-hmm. whatever doing mm-hmm. yeah do stuff all the time uh like I, I started playing organized sports when i was five years old soccer and basketball so essentially you'd want to you'd want to have one sport per season and then the gymnastics type of stuff to be omnipresent and when you're a little kid you know And this this isn't the case for some people who get really heavily involved in club sports. They start practicing just that sport three to four times a week with tournament on on the weekend when they're six years old. I'd say if you practice, if you had two sport practices during the week and then a game on the weekend, different sport every season for phase one. Then they become 10 and maybe 10 to 13 years old. So, you know, Early adolescence to the start of high school, then they're going to go to three organized sports seasons, with one season dedicated purely to GPP, you know, and uh, how this actually gets put into practice. You could do it wrong, and you could be like, "All right, well now it's ten year old; it's your GPP season." You know, it's not going to be like that. It's got to be more fun and and loose than that. But the concept would be three organized sports seasons and one season just for training you know training for a 10 11 year old so that training season is going to be gymnastics calisthenics probably introduce some resistance training at that point and then the other three seasons are for the sport but three different sports and now maybe you go to practicing three to four times a week with a game on the weekend the occasional tournament but still some some other gpp stuff throughout the year all the time because that's how the the you know a 11-year-old soccer practice shouldn't just be two hours of of soccer strategy. It needs to be teaching them how to run, you know, doing push-ups and sit-ups and air squats and all that kind of stuff, just making them better athletes and coordination drills and everything. So that'd be phase two. Phase three, high school, you go to two competitive sports and two seasons of GPP. So the competitive sport is going to have to be pretty much focused on just that sport with limited GPP in it. So let's say you play football in the fall, do track in the spring. You're just doing that sport. You practice 5, you know, 5 times a week, you have a game every week during that season. Then you have two seasons for general training. And then finally the the person gets to college and they play one sport and they go into a regular sort of annual plan with times of more GPP, less GPP. More SPP, less SPP. Hmm. But it's like kind of a, a just simple, simple strategy. No, explain
2: uh, Bo Jackson.
4: <laughs> uh, let's get Bo Jackson's parents on here, and that explains <laughs> Bo Jackson. <laughs> but, you know, you, you look a lot of, uh, at a lot of these athletes who grow up in rural, uh, rural areas, and a lot of uh, like strength athletes, people like uh, John Cole, Don Reinhout, guys who who were competing in the seventies. And still had records standing into the 2000s in in powerlifting, into the 20-teens even. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, training, that's gotten better. Like, training's supposed to have gotten better. You know, genetics are supposed to have advanced, nutrition, you know, drugs, all this stuff. Like, it shouldn't even be close. I think one really big thing that people, you know, growing up in the 40s and 50s or growing up in rural areas have is better gpp because of a more active lifestyle a more general uh you know a more general preparatory base whether that means you're doing manual labor working on a farm all right yeah you're doing manual labor there's no you don't have tv you don't have video games so you're just outside playing with your friends all the time and and Mm -hmm. you know and i'm only 30 i'm 32 but uh I, I was very fortunate in the way, yeah, you know, that my parents encouraged me to, to to do all these different sports. But the school I went to went to a private private school. We had twenty four boys in my graduating class. So I went kindergarten through eighth grade with almost all the same people. Of those twenty four boys, eight of us went uh, to Divi- on Division one scholar- college scholarships for volleyball, track, water polo, soccer, all these different sports, and it was. It was not like it was some athlete magnet school. It was just a kind of unique blend of of kids where we had the most competitive recess and lunch games
0: <laughs> all the time right.
4: from kindergarten through you know, maybe in eighth grade. That's when we were finally like, okay, I guess we don't want to play like all out as hard as we can basketball for the next 45 minutes and go to our next class sweaty as hell because like now we care about girls. But right. up until that <laughs> point, it was like. We'd be coming, oh, game on. Yeah, like coming back into class, like, you know, skin, knees, like whatever, just drenched in sweat because we played hard all the time. Different, I remember you know, that. It'd be a, a month we'd play basketball and then we played soccer and then this handball and foursquare and whatever it was, we had this great general preparation. So a lot of people like Bo Jackson or Herschel Walker, mm-hmm. uh, if you've seen one of my favorite 30 for 30s, uh, the best that never was, Marcus uh, Dupree. Yeah. Yes, yes. You know, they, they talk about him lifting weights on the broomstick and he's loading the bricks on there. And then they play all these pickup football games and pick up basketball games and, and just Herschel Walker sees a train going down the tracks and he's trying to race the train for as long as he can. That's just an incredible level of preparation hmm. that if someone is in this formalized soccer practice, soccer practice, soccer practice, or travel baseball, and then winter travel ball and then spring travel mm-hmm. ball, and all they do is, is play baseball. They're never going to be able to match that level of GPP because if a kid has done that, whether it's manual labor or whatever, from when they're six to they're 16, and the other kid from six to 16 did club sports, you know, with no, with whatever GPP component is involved in that, but nothing outside of it. Mm-hmm. How, when the, both of those kids are 16 years old, this guy's been doing two to four hours a day of manual labor and play and this kid's been been doing two hours a day of soccer practice how's the how's the soccer practice kid ever going to catch up 10 years of gpp work that the other kid has on
1: well it's even more than that because there there are formidable years in brain development where if you take a child and you have them learn Th- you know, three different languages before the age of ten, they'll speak all three of them without an accent. Uh-huh. You could take an adult and have them learn. I, I mean, you could teach me Spanish, Chinese, and Russian, and I can learn them and I'll be able to speak them. But I'll always have an American accent. Yeah, I'll yeah. always have an English accent because I've missed those those formidable years of brain development where yeah. the brain it's got a certain amount of plasticity. Exactly. But there's a, a a certain amount of development that becomes solidified, and the plasticity of a child's brain is insane. And so they just learn how to become these, you know, uh, just this, this, they develop this incredible intelligence, uh, through body awareness because they're doing all kinds of different things. You just can't get that later on, Mm -hmm. but there's another component too that I was going to ask you about is I bet you the injury rates are probably higher with the kids that just do the same shit all the time. Oh, for sure.
4: Yeah. That's, that's one of the biggest problems of early specialization, (laughs) uh, in youth athletics is, you know, burnout from a psychological standpoint, but also repetitive use injuries from you know, kind of a lack of uh, a broad enough preparedness base. But to that idea of like neural plasticity, that's huge uh, particularly in the most explosive of sports. Uh, so hundred meters uh, being you know, the main example, the highest velocity mm-hmm. that people are moving in any sport. If in that formative time, kind of the, the stage one and stage two or phase one and phase two that I talked about. So about six to 12 years old, if they're not doing like very fast movements in that or they their youth soccer coach decides that they're gonna you know do long distance running and run a lot of gassers during that time that kid will never be able to to run you know that that last the difference between 10 ones and and nine nines in the hundred meters they'll never be able to mm-hmm. to overcome that wow that time of of like lactic based work and it, it yeah sometimes uh in orange county we have huge club sports so anytime i'm, I'm driving a drive past the soccer field like there's some kind of club soccer practice going on and i see the kids running running gassers or just like these long jogs or something and i'm just like uh, he's taking he's taking right. the fast twitch out of them right, now. <laughs> oh, yeah,
3: yeah. right. right. there's no like one
4: mind. sprinter in there you're killing you're yeah. killing right, that yeah. one sprinter in there one day yeah. In the, uh, you guys ever read the book uh, The Sports Gene by David Epstein? No, no, oh, I've been meaning I've, to. I've seen, yeah, yeah, yeah I've heard very about good, it. Very, very interesting. And he talks about in, uh, I think it's the Netherlands for soccer, small small country but very successful uh, soccer program. But they had this incredibly high incidence of injuries with their fastest athletes, and it's because sort of what they built their their model on was really high volume training. And those kind of athletes can't tolerate Mm it, can't tolerate that because their outputs are too high. So they'd have like their fastest athletes always out because of the chronic hamstring Mm -hmm. problems and stuff. And kind of to that same effect is just training them not organized the right way for them at the right times, particularly. Hmm.
1: Yeah. It's uh, the other, the other aspect of it, even besides looking at it and saying, I want my kid to be this incredible athlete is. You want them to be as as healthy um, and mobile as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I, le- I mean this hit me real hard. When we had a, a a movement specialist, who's a friend of ours, talk to us about the uh, the foot and just how complex the muscles and the movement of the foot are, and how we've completely ruined our feet because we've we wear shoes since the time we can walk. Mm-hmm. And I remember going online and looking at the feet of uh, modern hunter gatherers and how different their feet looked. I mean their their toes were all spread out and muscular and and I looked at my feet and I'm like, there's no amount of training I could do now yeah. that will ever make my feet like, because they've been doing it since they were children. I've missed those formidable years of that kind of development. So it's just how important. So when you look at like school programs and stuff now that if they're taking out activity and children now are stuck on electronics and yeah. seem to be encouraged to do so.
4: Um, well, the liability, like uh, Marissa's got two kids, a 14 year old daughter and a 12 year old son. My twelve-year-old son, like if he runs across the playground, like they're not allowed to run. Yeah, like at school. What? Outside of like, in PE type of stuff because of just liability. Oh my god! This is here in California. Yeah.
3: Oh my god! Oh, they like a yard duty's out there blowing a whistle if you're running. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: But what's wrong with that is they're looking at that's that's upsetting. They're looking at it like you know, okay, it's dangerous. Kids can fall down and get hurt. Yes. Yes. Risk goes up when you run. But, the, but they don't understand that they're they're taking away the development uh, yeah. of of that child and not realizing that their ability to move and learn how to move doesn't just affect their body. Mm-hmm. it also affects their brain yeah because that's where it all comes from. It's not just coming from it's not just the muscles and bones mm-hmm. it's also brain development. so it's uh, it's it's <laughs> oh, it's that's, pretty crazy it's shocking. Yeah. I had yeah. no idea that was happening yeah, yeah. yeah. it's
4: it's pretty pretty awful.
1: Wow. So when you're training younger athletes, is th- is that one of the strategies to prevent injuries, to make them as general as possible?
4: Yeah, yeah very general preparation. Like I said, gymnastics-based drills, that's going to be great. You know, parents with, with young kids, like get your kid into gymnastics right away. They, they might, you know, they're probably never going to grow up and be Sean Johnson or, or, you know, Simone Biles or whatever. But just that coordination that they develop there dance type of stuff uh I was listening to this thing on uh, lomachenko the boxer and he was a a ballerino which mm-hmm. is the male version of a ballerina mm-hmm. i just never actually i don't know heard. that you did yeah. you would say that I I know they're oh, all yeah. ballerinas yeah. i'd never <laughs> heard i'd never heard that either and i understand why because it's a goofy sounding word it sounds yeah. like some really italian yeah ballerino yeah, yeah. yeah tony ballerino yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but he don't was don't let a, him date your daughter <laughs> yeah. he was a ballerino from like a high level in russia from like five to 15 and well no wonder he's got the most phenomenal mm-hmm. footwork and and this really unique boxing style from from all of that general preparation um but yeah so that stuff just very very and let them have fun like encourage them to to try all these different stuff and have fun doing it so you mentioned a little bit like so if
2: you're driving by and you're watching all these kids get overly conditioned and, uh, some of these things that you see really irritate you. What are some other things, uh, within strength and conditioning world and coaches that you see, uh, you know, that really irritate you as far as like what
4: they're teaching their, uh, you know, their athletes. Uh, you know, if, if there was one thing that, that what really grinds my gears, um, are people and, and social media and everything has has made this, way too prevalent is that anyone can be an expert. This is the most, the most frustrating Mm -hmm. thing to me that the, the barrier of entry to expertise is none. Yeah. Non-existent. Uh, it's how many followers you have. Exactly. It's, and everyone's got a smartphone, so they're all ready to film themselves doing, doing their thing, but they have no credential behind it. So, you know, we talk about expertise in, in, uh, you know, strength or powerlifting coaches, weightlifting coaches is really being able to be measured by, by three factors. And you want to have at least two of the three and the people you're listening to, you want to look and make sure that they have at least two of these three things and three out of three, even better that they've done it themselves. If they've done it at a very high level, that can be good, but some people are just meant to be strong and, and that's how they were born. They could have done anything to get there, but it does give a, a bit of unique perspective if you are a really high level competitor, I think that there are unique insights you can have to other high level competitors, hundred percent, maybe more psychological even than, uh, you know, than that real organization of training Two, have you coached people very successfully? That's a big one. Mm -hmm. And three, what is your education in this formal informal? My degree is in history, you know, but, but I've informally educated myself about this stuff. If, if, there's so many people out there listening to people with, with maybe one out of three of those things, Right. Maybe. very often zero out of three, those things. And I, and I see some people, you know, being touted as these, these guru level coaches and these incredible sources of knowledge, you know, while, while Max, my, my, you know, our weightlifting coach at Juggernaut, he and I are at you know IPF worlds coaching powerlifters or IWF worlds coaching weightlifters or the US open for powerlifting big dogs all these the biggest competitions in the world for these sports and we look around and we're like well where the fuck are these uh these people that you know where where are these coaches the ones that everyone that they got so many followers like they're not here cuz they don't actually do it mm-hmm. so that that's the most frustrating thing to me um
1: well i think part of the problem Or maybe part of the challenge, we see this in our space all the time, um, is that the the people who are getting all the the views and attention, they're just good at looking good and communicating. And a lot of times the people who have the great information, the smart people, are boring. And they're not getting the same kind of attention. So it's like, do you look at that and say, okay, that guy's an idiot, but he's doing something right because he's getting all the views. What can I learn from that so people can hear me?
4: Yeah. So the, 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 distinction I make there is that there's internet coaches and there's coaches who put stuff on the internet. The latter I think is a much better thing. You know, mm-hmm. real coaches who then want to share, share their, mm-hmm. their information rather than people who just talk about it, you know, and can make a great YouTube video, but you can have all the best information in the world. And this is really our, our goal at Juggernaut is we're, we're coaches who put stuff on the internet,
0: mm-hmm.
4: but if we can't figure out how to share that information effectively with as many people as possible what's the point mm-hmm. so you know everyone's got kind of a, a different place that they might draw their their line with with some of that stuff on like how clickbaity or whatever it's going to get but if a clickbait type of title gets more people to watch or read really useful information well that's a that's a great thing so you know for us the last real two, maybe going on three years uh, as we've tried to get more professional in our, in our video and, and presentation for everything. Yeah. I mean, we, we got to learn, learn from those people and and be able to more effectively share the information. Well,
3: that was a challenge that we had. I remember when we first started was, was that was okay. How do we get this attention and and not feel like we have to do all this gimmicky type shit. And, you know, and, and some people gave us some heat because we, you know, when that's unfortunately how like the YouTube algorithm works, you know, mm-hmm. is if you got a good thumbnail, you've got a good title, a lot of people click and view on it and comment it right away. It pops up and views on more pages. You're more likely to get found. And the thing that I would always challenge people that, you know, would give us a hard time for that is just like, listen, did you did you not find the information incredibly valuable? Exactly. Like I didn't clickbait you and then try and sell you some bullshit. Yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> I clickbaited you to get you to hear so you could hear a really good message. And yeah. if, if you feel that the message wasn't good, then by all means, speak up. But, you know, if you, I think if you're presenting good, good a good message, I think that you guys sometimes have to kind of play you know, some of the tactics and the game that some of these people are doing on it just to get noticed, you know, get oh, out there. Sure. So and I think people like yourself, I think, will, will sustain much longer business wise. Like, I think we're going through a phase right now. This, yeah. you know, you've been around for a long time. You've been in the business for a long time like us. Uh, and I feel like we're all kind of in this. Instagram, YouTube world right now that's still in its infancy. Yeah. And I think uh, the, the cream will rise to the top. You know, The,
1: the thing that, that um, I would like to see is because when you look at general health and fitness, a lot of the information is coming from people who look a certain way. Mm-hmm. I would like to see more coaches who understand training, really know training, and who have experience training people and working with people. I'd like to see them be able to get more popular because they're the ones that are actually giving the good information. Oh, that's what
3: motivated what we're doing here.
1: Yeah, the look good people are given just terrible. And we're just talking about general fitness stuff. And I look at
4: this and it's just, ah. I mean, I've always taken a lot of pride in knowing that I have this certain level of, of popularity and like that as a ratio to like how not funny I am on videos and how <laughs> and how fat yeah. I, I am. I was like, this is the most impressive ratio. I'm the least funny and fattest person yeah. to be this popular.
0: <laughs>
4: so I always <laughs> think you're winning, dude. That means that, you're yeah. presenting good yeah. shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's winning. what that means. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, they, they're they're obviously here for my for my mind. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. They're not yeah. using yeah. me for my body. Yeah. Uh but yeah that 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 is a tough a tough thing but something I've always kind of kept in mind that you know, our, our number one goal is to pr- to provide people the most useful information to help them reach their goals. And that might not always be packaged in the slickest or sexiest way or whatever, but it's never going to go out of style. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so some people might come in a year two years, five year run and they're big and then they're gone. Right. And, but I, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years. I plan on, on doing it for as many more as I can. I've had four jobs in my whole life delivered newspapers when I was like 11, worked at a restaurant, coached high school football. And I did juggernaut. I'm only going to have four jobs. This is what I'll do for the rest of my life. That's awesome. That's cool. Man.
1: Let's talk about the difference because you had mentioned the three things, the three criteria markers that you should look at. And one of those, uh, which I fully agree with is having actually coached uh, or worked with many people. Um, and, for me, that's the difference between, um, knowledge, uh, and wisdom, um, you know, in, in the space of just, you know, training everyday people. And we would, we, I would see these people who would have these advanced degrees and training Mm -hmm. or who themselves were amazing athletes, but had never worked with lots and lots of everyday people. And so they just didn't know how to apply it. They didn't have any wisdom. I mean, how important is that is is wisdom versus knowledge and, and you know what you're doing?
4: Yeah. I mean, of those three factors, the, actually having coached and done it effectively and successfully is the, is the most significant one. This is very unlikely that someone has just coached really well without having one of, if not both of the other parts, unless they're just like a great recruiter or incredibly lucky. Um, I started coaching high school football when I was 19 years old. And if I look back at the programs and stuff that I wrote, for our, for our team in the off-season then compared to what we, you know, what I stuff I write now, that program was so needlessly complex. Mm. and and It's so funny where you're yeah, going. So, it's it's funny where you're going right now yeah. because this is
3: something that we say on the show all the time yeah. of how we used to train clients. I mean, the in the early days, I mean, we've all mm-hmm. been doing this for between 16, 20 years. And back when I started, uh, it was – you know, how much could I throw at the client yeah. to confuse them and just do all this stuff? And now when I look at the way we program, I mean, it's your core lifts. It's the big yeah. four core. And then it's like a few things built on that. And in fact, if we ever get a return, we rarely have somebody return anything that we or any of our programs. But if we do, it's normally somebody who has not listened to the show. They just bought it because someone told them and then they return it going these are all movements. All I know. fancy stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. I know these exercises. I thought I was going to get something totally different. Well, that's because you <laughs> fucking should be doing that.
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, you know, the, the last 13 years of, of coaching people from, you know, youth athletes to professional athletes. Uh, There's just so, so much understanding that I gained of why, what I was doing then was less than ideal. And even to go back farther than that, I I've essentially written my own training with the exception of about a year and a half in college. And then about 10 months working with uh, a powerlifting coach named Josh Bryant. I've written my own training since I was 14 years old. So just the, you know, I was my first Guinea pig. And then the guys on our high school team who like, they really wanted to try and train hard. Like all right, then I started writing their, their programs and stuff too. And it, it's th- that trial and error and, and the psychology of working with people. That's and, a big one. Yeah. the There's no way to, to learn how to do it without mm-hmm. doing it.
2: And I see that you constantly revisit it and you, yeah. you look back and, and, and see, uh, okay, where are those things that I could improve upon? And I think that that's you know that's a great practice and something that's admirable. I, I don't see it. a lot of times I'll see coaches and programs that are popular out there that will just—I mean, that's it. That that's where, uh, and and they'll defend it by all means necessary and, and won't be real critical of
4: it. So uh, on on Wednesday when I did this this coaching education thing for Mambo Sports Academy, it came about because my friend who's the the head of physical preparation there. He has his his assistants. Every week, they they rotate doing like a continuing education thing, and they they make a presentation. So he tells me he's like, "Oh, our our guy today is presenting about the Juggernaut method," and I was like, "Oh, that's cool." And I was I uh, I was like, "Well, maybe I'll, sh- I'll show up and like surprise him
0: and mm-hmm. walk
4: in as he's about to start uh, start presenting." But but I see the presentation. And it's like you know, this is stuff I wrote six or seven years ago. Like I've learned like. A ton of stuff since then. I was like, "How about you guys? Instead of this, you know, seven-year-old book, here's things that I'm doing now." Yeah, you know, not that the stuff was wrong then; it's just not as right as right. it could have been. We've built on it. Are, yeah.
1: are you seeing a? Because I, I, I look at you know fitness more from a general standpoint, and I was a big fan of uh, you know the bodybuilding magazines and stuff like that growing up, and it, there seemed to be a period of time where there wasn't that much focus on training and how important training was, how important uh, your programming was it, w- it, for, it was at first and then it wasn't po- it was like everybody worked out the same. It was all about the supplements and steroids you took and everybody worked out followed the same routine. And now it feels like people are starting to get back into programming and how important that is. Are, are we seeing that generally as well where now everybody's really starting to pay attention to uh, you know programming and, and how big of a difference that makes versus all the other stuff?
4: Uh yeah, I I don't know if it's if it's in place of all the other stuff, but it it's it's definitely you know, people are really looking at the details there and
1: it feels more now than ever. That's yeah. what it feels like.
4: Yeah, and and for a lot of people it's probably to a fault that they're <clears throat> they're overanalyzing every just little, you know, they can right. put the tendo or, or or to measure bar velocity and their HRV in every single one of these data pieces they can get, but they don't know what to do with, with the mm-hmm. data. So, you know, that's kind of always pendulum swinging, swinging back and forth. And it's probably to an overanalyzing in a lot of uh, parts right now. And, and, you know, I'm, I've probably contributed to that, at least in the powerlifting world, because, well, you know, we're trying to do it the best we mm-hmm. can. So we present a lot of information about that, but the, the program side of things has always been what's most interesting to me. I mean, even when, I, when I was 14, 15 years old, you know, and, and Google was much more limited than in the early 2000s, and information that you could get access to just didn't exist nearly to the point it did today. But I was trying to find all of it, and and I go back and still have some of these like binders full of mm. of the training that I would do then, because it was sprinting and jumping and throwing and lifting and all this stuff. And some of it was great, and some of it was stupid. But I was I was all trying to put it together in in the right way, and I think. For me, throughout my own powerlifting career, like, yeah, I had good genetics to lift a lot of weight, but not better than a lot of the other people out there. But I lifted more weight because I did a more effective, well-designed program. That's why I had these huge carryovers from training to competition. And and to be able to help athletes do that now, you know, is, that's always like, that's the fun part of the puzzle for me is is how we're going to get the most out of this one day that matters mm-hmm. Yeah, but I started training in jiu-jitsu about a year ago so now I'm training for jiu-jitsu tournaments and it's all right well how do I put the the jiu-jitsu training together with the lifting and
1: you know you brought up the examples of uh, of kids who were so genetically gifted at speed that they'd never picked up the intricacies of the technique mm-hmm. are you having issues like that with jiu-jitsu cuz you're such a big strong dude are you finding it hard to like scale down your strength and focus cuz i mean I, I rolled i did jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. for about 6 years and I used to have to do that. And I'm not, I'm like half your size. And I remember I used to have to scale it back because otherwise I would get away with a lot of strength. Are you finding like I got to chill and otherwise you're just going <laughs> to.
4: Yeah. So destroy. As, as soon as I started, everyone was like, you know, roll like you're like, you have no strength, you know, try to not yeah. use any of your strength. And I, I took that to heart right off the bat. So I try and be as technical as possible and not use a lot of strength, but then it's when it's higher belt guys and or you know, preparing for a tournament, like okay, I got to use the gifts. That use I what you have. have. Use the gifts that I have, but but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to learn. Yeah, you know, I'll try and if if we're drilling some Barambolo stuff, I'm gonna I'm gonna try it the best I can. It's so it's I don't think it's as mentally limited as it is just physical flexibility and mobility for some of the positions, uh, limiting me on on some of the technique stuff. But actually, my first exposure to jiu-jitsu, it was one of the first. Groups that we actually trained a lot of athletes in when I opened Juggernaut two thousand nine, uh, I was fortunate enough to connect with an athlete named Fabio Vilela and uh, this guy six seven two fifty Brazilian dude, and we we're kind of just cold calling people when we opened up, and he ran a jiu jitsu school, and I was like, hey, can I come tell you about what we do? And went in, talked to him, and I was like, how about you come in on Monday, and and I'll I'll take you through a session, if you like it, you know, you can tell your students about it. He did that, you know, from from him and uh training uh at one point probably had like fifteen black belts, pretty much all Gracie Baja guys, the professors to like every school in Orange County at the time, they would all train together, at Gracie Baja headquarters, where I train now, and they would come and do the strength and conditioning with me after guys like Hamalou Bahao, seven time world champion um Philippe Pena who's considered like the best jiu-jitsu athlete in the world mm-hmm. now uh trained him when he's like before he won purple belt worlds and then before brown belt worlds and and they'd always be like oh Shad like you got the train man like you're gonna <laughs> you're, you're gonna smash everybody <laughs> and like oh yeah you know that would be fun but like I can't hurt my elbow or something I gotta lift and and do these so I just got to point in you know, late uh 2017 I was like, uh, oh, powerlifting, I've done that. Same shit over and over every day. Dude, like, my
1: first coach trained uh, and competed as a strongman, oh, yeah. uh, Garth Taylor. And he was uh, he was one of the first Americans, if not the first American, to medal in the Mundials. But uh, he moved, and he was a big dude. Yeah, yeah. But he moved like a small guy. And let yeah. me tell you, when you do jiu it's one thing to go against someone who's good. It's another thing to go against someone who's fucking massive and strong and good. It's very it's yeah. very humbling. It's a very humbling experience. So yeah. it's gonna be fun.
4: Yeah, I mean the whole sport has just been it's uh, I've really enjoyed it now for uh, fifteen months or so. It's a blast it's just new challenge every day. And uh and now you know, we're ten 10 weeks out from Pan Ams or something, so you know, I'm I'm on my computer and I was like, All right, we're gonna do this on this day, this on this day, and how That's am I awesome. gonna fit it all? fit it all in and, and that's it's, awesome. It's a lot of fun.
1: Now, uh, back to powerlifting ha, has powerlifting, are they enjoying a, uh, a, a, a spurt and growth and popularity right now? Because mm. I remember for a second there, uh, powerlifting seemed to get a little crazy with all the equipment that they were using, the, the suits and the bench shirts and stuff like that. And yeah, it yeah. seems like now you're seeing a lot more lifters go out there raw and that seems to have made it more popular. Is my speculation correct?
4: Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I started powerlifting end of twenty ten and I'd never been to a powerlifting meet before. I remember when I was going to to buy my first singlet that I was I was on Elite FTS and I was looking at these I was looking at the page and I was like, why is this one two hundred and fifty dollars and this one's fifty dollars? I said, I should get that two hundred and fifty dollar one. It must be better. Yeah, but it was a squat suit, not a <laughs> not a singlet, and I just did I didn't know the difference. And uh, uh I was Probably if there were 30 lifters at the meet I did, there was 10 raw and 20 equipped lifters there. And I'd done a couple meets competing raw against or like at big multiply powerlifting meets in early 2011. So all these guys from Westside and Big Iron and all this stuff, they're there. And I'm watching it just like, how the fuck would anyone do this? Like, this is really weird to me. Like, besides that, the the equipment is just I just don't understand why someone would want to do it. But also a lot of that lifting was done to a really poor standard of uh, with, with very lax judging, letting mm-hmm. stuff pass. And I think as people, as YouTube and, and everything started to become more prevalent and people could see like, okay, well they said that they have this many people that squat 1100 pounds, but what they just did there was not a squat. They, uh, it, it sort of shifted the tide there to, to raw. And then with CrossFit coming in, just so many more people knew what, squat bench and deadlift were so that you know exponentially increased the the numbers the first meet i ever did in october 2010 was the first meet that the uspa had ever held and they're probably the second biggest federation in the u.s 30 lifters in a high school gym you could drive two hours uh you know from my house in orange county a two-hour radius every weekend the uspa would be having a meet with 60 90 120 lifters mm. wow and back in 2010 you're at you're at the meet you could tell everyone there was a powerlifter you could tell by looking at them that mm-hmm. they were a powerlifter now you go and there's from 15 year old kids to you know 75 year old yeah it's
1: becoming a thing now yeah
4: grandmas and mm-hmm. stuff and you know people instead of playing in in their you know tuesday night softball league or you know men, men's league basketball or whatever like now they do powerlifting and uh it's been really cool to see to see that growth the level of lifting is unbelievable uh i squad 905 in 2011 there's pretty much only two americans i was one of two americans uh actively competing who had done that raw now there's like i don't know 30 40 50 wow, wow. numbers that that were great for 275s and 308s and stuff hmm. in 2012 now are being done by 198s and 220s the level of female lifting is even more amazing than that uh Marissa first set the IPF world record in the deadlift she pulled 385 at 114 gosh at the 2016 Arnold that was the IPF world record now just in USAPL, IPF, there's probably eight or nine girls in our weight class who can go over that. Wow. And
1: I love, uh, one of the things I love about powerlifting is uh, what always drew me to it was it was performance-based. But besides that, I like it because uh, it's a great counter to some of the negatives that uh, people can get from fitness, which is the the focus on so much on the aesthetic and especially with women that they, uh, to the detriment of their health, because they're just focused on how they look and Mm. they start to cut their calories and they start to eat real little and overwork their bodies. Where you can take someone like that who maybe has some food issues or issues with, you know, their, their, their self image, get them to compete in a performance based sport like powerlifting where you got to feed yourself and you're measuring your progress, not because you've lost 10 pounds on the scale, Mm. but rather because you're lifting more weight. Um, and you can get extreme in any sport, but I always found it to be a great healthy alternative, or, or at least something that I think is—it's a good thing that's getting popular. I guess is what I want to say.
4: Yeah, uh, there is a lot of stuff like that 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 exists for sure. And even I think within weight class controlled sports, powerlifting, weightlifting, there's people who probably still, you know, struggle with some of those issues trying to hold their sure hold their weight down uh, for a weight class. Or who go to the other side of it and they're like, well fuck it. It doesn't matter at all how much I weigh now, just how much I lift. Uh, I don't know if I if I did that, but yeah, you know, I was like three 375 uh lifting my best about 370, 375, I'm like 315 now. But uh so there's there's definitely people who are just like, it doesn't matter, I'm just gonna sure. lift as much as I can, and that's not healthy either. But uh yeah, it's 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 a great it's, it's a cool sport because anyone, anyone can do it. And, uh, yeah, you, you do get that, that focus on performance. And it seems so many girls who do bikini or physique or something, you know, they, they see their their Instagram fitspo and that gets them to, to do their first, mm-hmm. you know, bikini competition. It's like, well, that person's probably going to do a powerlifting meet. Within a year, you know, because they're kind of like, oh, fuck this dieting. This is terrible. <laughs> like,
3: I appreciate that, well, too. Well, not only that, but that I think part of the the increase, too, is that, you know, and I remember watching this, and we have talked about this on the show before. You know, 15 years ago, I'd come in the gym, and there'd be dust on the squat rack. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody was doing it. And we've, we've talked about, I think, how what CrossFit did so great for – just the general fitness space is they've reintroduced, like you said, those, those exercises. Now everybody knows what bench squat deadlift really is. I mean, it was such a foreign, foreign movements, unless you were in the strength type of world. So I really think that just that reintroduction of that, and then people finding out how important those lifts are. I mean, those of us that have been in this for a long time know that, but the general population, I don't think realized how important those lifts are for so many other than besides just strength and how you look, but also just general health. I mean you're talking about some of the most important listen and then and I think that we've talked about this also the programming in the strength world has been superior to the bodybuilding world and and everywhere else for a very long time. I mean I, f- I feel like yeah, yeah that was the only place there was real programming for a long time.
4: Yeah and I think you know track and field is always the sport that I, that I look at that's the most cutting edge in terms of, of program design because is the the highest levels of human performance mm-hmm. uh, with weightlifting just slightly below that and both of those can kind of trickle down to powerlifting to to other strength and yep. conditioning and then those ideas probably eventually trickle down to general population stuff but uh but yeah it's it's certainly when every pound or every kilo matters it's objective. Yeah. The the programming has to be that much sharper.
3: I yeah. really like what you guys are doing. I don't know how long you've been doing this on the YouTube channel. I w- I'm curious to what made you start doing this, but you guys are, I don't, are those other coaches for you that are doing the logs, the workout logs?
4: Uh Yeah. So, so that one that you're talking about specifically is a guy named Garrett Blevins. Yeah. So Garrett is a co-creator with me. We have juggernaut AI coaching. Uh, it's an expert system. It is artificial intelligence, expert system. It's not machine learning stuff that would be like an unethical thing to actually try and use machine learning on humans. Oh, that's such a,
3: it's a good topic right there. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> we have a buddy who actually has created an app, and that was yeah. one of the things that you know we try to tell him. He's dumped a ton of money in and invested in the last few years doing it, and it's like you can't really create a complete AI for the human. I mean, because there's so many variables yeah. that could change.
4: Yeah, it has to to at least begin with known parameters that that myself the expert in our expert system has given to it right because if it, it's not it can't just have a, a billion trials of things on on a you know a piece of data mm-hmm. it, a person has to do this stuff mm-hmm. and if the machine thinks like well let's try ten, this 10 it's were, not gonna ten, have the intuition yeah, yeah 10 was good so 20 must be better then let's just keep going and then the person dies, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we, we create this expert system, AI, uh, coaching. It's got, uh, it'll be in a mobile app in, in March. Uh, right now it's all for powerlifting, but we'll also have it for, uh, weightlifting and then super total which is powerlifting, weightlifting combination. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Garrett's just kind of, you know, he's running it himself and, and showcasing how it works. Uh, okay.
3: That's what that is. Yeah.
4: And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people, Thought, oh, there's using AI. That's just like a a gimmick for marketing. Like, no, it is an AI expert uh, expert system, uh, artificial intelligence. Like, we talked to computer science professors and they're like, yes, this is artificial intelligence. It's got four quadrillion permutations of the original inputs, four quadrillion permutations to the program that's taking into account athletes' gender, height, weight, experience, strength, and all the lifts diet, sleep, outside training stress, uh, different technique considerations to design a totally custom program, like as close to what I would write for them. Right. Mm. But it does it, you know. In a, Do you have any yeah. sensors
2: or anything involved with that process or how does it, it get all that outside stress data?
4: No, that stuff's all just uh, based on the athlete feedback. Yeah, perceived, oh, right? Perceived, yeah. I got gotcha. you. You know, uh, as we get into the mobile app and, and further down other versions of it, I'd love to be able to do some like HRV uh-huh. integration to it, uh, even stuff like, you know, velocity tracking mm-hmm. integrations to it. So you can get away from any sort of uh, just pure perceptive RPE uh, ratings on it. Uh, that stuff will be a bit further further down the road. You know, you can, you can get so detailed and nuanced with, with a lot of this stuff and it's like, powerlifting is a pretty simple sport. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. So, so that stuff will be, be fun to have at some point, but, but not really necessary. So it's, it's giving very individualized volume, um, recommendations and frequency based on all of those individual differences. Um, and then adjusting it intra session, intra week, you know, what you did on your first squat day of the week is going to change what your second day looks like. What you do this week is gonna change what next week looks like. The average of this entire train cycle, this month, is gonna change what next month looks like. So, it makes a lot of uh, a lot of adjustments. Very cool, interesting.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's excellent. The the only drawback to stuff like that is uh, when people start to rely so much on data that they stop listening to themselves or stop, you know. Yeah. But I think in com- in combination uh, with that kind of awareness. I mean, we're gonna we're entering into a future of uh, of training that I think is going to uh, be phenomenal. It's a powerful tool for coaches, for sure. Absolutely powerful. You guys are doing great things. Thank you. Absolutely yeah. great. I mean, our our goal when we first started this this company was to highlight uh, first off us ourselves bring good information to the fitness space, but then to highlight people who know more than us in their specific in their in their specific areas of expertise, uh, just to get the word out because we we always talk about this, but we're fighting a battle right now with bad information uh-huh. yep. shitty fitness information and, and 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 we're trying to shift the fitness industry in the direction of uh you know science and what works and what doesn't work and i think you guys are one of the few guys that are that are actually doing things right
4: thank you very much yeah, yeah we uh, we take a lot of pride in, in what we do
1: yeah we appreciate you coming on Chad. thank yeah, you thanks, yeah, my man. pleasure thank you
4: awesome
0: thank you for listening to mind pump if your goal is to build and shape your body dramatically improve your health and energy and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at mindpumpmedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes MAPS Anabolic, MAPS Performance, and MAPS Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs.